Let's find common ground. Welcome to the podcast. I'm the host Florian Glatz. I'm the founder of Common Ground. And today I have the amazing guest Sebastian Bürgel, founder of Hoppernet. And um, yeah, just very excited to see where this journey goes. Hi, Sebastian. Hi, Florian. Thank you so much for having me on the show and great to reconnect with you again. Welcome to Finding Common Ground, your gateway to the digital revolution in community building, cooperative governance, and collective ownership. Join us as we explore the future of humankind in the 21st century with thought-provoking conversations featuring innovators, pioneers, and visionaries from around the globe. Let's embark on this journey together, bridging divides and reimagining our collective future. Get ready to be inspired, informed, and ignited. Let's find common ground. Please introduce yourself quickly to our listeners who don't know you. Yeah, sure. So my name is Sebastian. I've been working in the crypto space, I would say pretty much full-time since the day Ethereum launched. Back then I was still employed as an academic researcher at ETH Zurich, which funnily enough has nothing to do with ETH, the currency. Um, yeah, did a PhD, finished my PhD in microelectronics there and uh, got dragged deep into the crypto rubbish hole ever since. Um, had a consulting company where we were building decentralized projects and through that was, uh, yeah, looking at building truly decentralized applications. And on there we decided and seen that there's no good way to exchange data privately on the web three. There's on-chain privacy, which many people work on. That's great. There is decentralized data storage, but there's no good way of exchanging data. You know, sometimes I say how Alice met Bob and in, in a privacy preserving fashion in the web three. And that's what we're building with Hopper. So a, um, decentralized packet relay network that is more private than your VPN or Tor to send data privately. And yeah, that's what I've been building for the past, uh, something like three and a half years. Impressive to stick on a project for this long in the crypto space. So my head off for this. Before Thank we you. dive into, <laughs> before we dive into Hopper, uh, I want to start the conversation actually somewhere else, actually at the, at the end of it. Uh, we met recently in Denver at a private uh, meeting between lawyers and builders in the crypto web three space to discuss uh, the future of regulation, the future of this space. And we had a little chat and you mentioned something that really stuck with me which is the idea of the end game. Yeah. So that's where I want to start. What is the end game for crypto and web three in your opinion? So first of all, like just, just a, a, a clarification on the timeline, because crypto is very fast paced, as you mentioned, you know, some people think that, you know, the end game is in one year from now, you know, or half a year from now, you know, everybody will use crypto and the whole world will use Bitcoin and, you know, Bitcoin will be at a value of, you know, $1 million per Bitcoin, and that is the end game. That is a very different view than, than what I have. So to me, ultimately, crypto is, I think Vitalik said it nicely, is about freedom. And that to me means empowerment of the individual. And it's something that will play out over a long, long time scale. I think really, I'm, I'm thinking here about decades and not months or individual years. So to me, crypto is pushing for this end state of empowering the individual. 
empowering it versus, of course, you know, what we look at today, um, intruding behavior of individuals like hackers, you know, you want to secure your crypto, um, but also you secure uh, your own positions versus regulators, versus nation states, not just powerful individuals and corporations. And this empowerment of the individual is something that I'm very passionate about. Um, I do not think putting, pushing a price tag of, you know, $1 million to Bitcoin is helping a lot of people. Um, you know, maybe it ends up there, um, but that's not the primary goal. So for me, this end goal is to have a secure digital space based on top of which humans interact, humans do business, humans can safely interact with one another, not regulated by, um, you know, regulations and violence, but regulated by technologies, which ensure that I have the same opportunities as any other individual that is interfacing these technologies. That is some big vision you have. Um, before I go deeper into this, do you think when we are in this end game, will this be called Web3? Will this be called crypto? Or will this have a completely different name? I don't really know. And I don't care so much as long as we get there. You know, I don't care what, what people call it by then. I mean, today I see this a bit, this delineation of people call crypto, the more money focused aspects. And this Web3 to me is not just a rebranding. Some people are saying, you know, Web3 was just a lame rebranding of crypto. I disagree. Crypto has um, very much a focus on money, on, you know, Bitcoin-like things, whereas Web3 is really these technologies. And when you think about, like, look on your mobile phone right now and, and think about how many apps do you actually use? How many money apps do you use? Sure, we use, probably many of us use mobile banking, maybe PayPal, maybe, you know, mobile credit cards and stuff like that. But how many other things do you do? Web3 is about all this other stuff. And um, that's why I, I um, like to call it Web3, because the web is much more than just money, and so it will be for the Web3. Interesting. I define Web3 as crypto minus the dogma. So nice. <laughs> actually taking the technology and making it usable by people and, you know, taking out this puristic view of how things have to be for them to be right. And yeah. just actually bringing the technology where the users are today. That, that to me means Web3. I think that's a, that's a big step of, of getting there and, um, you know, looking at BitBoy and, and all these uh, crazy influencers out there that I hope, you know, listeners uh, to, to this podcast uh, will not subscribe, but subscribe to the, to the substance, such as the things that you guys are, are proposing is, yeah. It's, it's two entirely different worlds. At some point I was looking at crypto, like I was, I was searching for some crypto stuff on YouTube and I was just shocked what sort of stuff I saw there. So yeah, taking the dogma yeah. out is a big step towards the end game, I guess. So regarding the end game, where are we? Are we in the opening still? Are we in the middle, middle game or are we, have we already entered the end game looking at, you know, what's yeah. happening in the United States at the moment and all these, all these yeah. things. No, to me, we're definitely in the, in the early beginning. This is definitely the early beginning. Um, I would call this the infrastructure phase. So many people are very excited about crypto applications, crypto games, 
you know, some things on top of NFTs. I'm personally not very excited about them because, you know, frankly, I, I like gaming. I have nothing against gaming whatsoever. But, you know, crypto gaming is nowhere. None of these games are fun. And if you think about it, like, why are crypto games not fun? I think there's great people working on it, but it's just admittedly hard. Why is it hard? Because we don't have the tools and the infrastructure ready yet to bring crypto to mass scale to all these amazing applications outside of, you know, what what I call crypto in the sense that it's crypto economics, crypto money, right? So crypto money is easy, you know, subtracting and adding numbers we can obviously do in a somewhat decentralized fashion, but going beyond that is kind of hard. So that's why I think we will still need several years to figure out infrastructure, lots of developments in the L2 space that I'm extremely excited about, lots of developments on the privacy space that I'm personally like very much into. That all needs to be figured out before we can build the tools that are required to build truly decentralized and individual empowering uh, applications and services in the Web3 space. You've mentioned this now a bunch of times, but let me ask it in a straightforward way. What is the value of decentralization to ordinary people listening maybe to this podcast? Yeah, so decentralization to me is a means to an end. It is that when I want to pay for services, if I want to, you know, just thinking about the crypto applications that we have today, if I want to pay somebody, if I want to swap some funds, you know, maybe ETH to some stable token in my local currency. Um, I don't want anybody to take this ability away from me. I don't want, I want to be empowered to use my personal finances however I please without having to ask for permission from, you know, powerful corporations, PayPal and Facebook come to mind, right? Because these powerful organizations sometimes take a role that previously was in the hands of nation states, for example, identity, right? We kind of take it for granted that lock it with Facebook is how the world works today. That's bizarre. That's broken. So I don't want a disturbed individual running uh, such big corporations taking this right away from me. And that is to me um, what this Web3 movement powers and one way to get there is decentralization. Decentralization means there's no one single party that can unilaterally take things away from me, take abilities away from me. But the second one that I think is equally important is privacy. I don't want a bunch of privileged individuals to spy on me while I do things in the digital world. So that's why decentralization and privacy are both the two important building blocks. Um, that lead to self-sovereign individuals in the digital world. Why do you think, though, have we adopted this login with Facebook model? It seems awfully convenient to use. Actually, most people, billions of people, have mastered to login with Facebook. Uh, only very few people have so far mastered the alternative technology stack of Web3. Do you yeah. think there is a fundamental trade-off between this decentralized way of doing things and, uh, you know, conveniently doing it in a way that most people understand how to do it? Or is this just because we're still so early? Is there a way to do all of these things in this more empowered, self-sovereign way um, as I, well? 
Yeah, I, I definitely think the latter. I think there is a way and we are definitely too early, right? So on the other hand, we have to, we have to face it. How many engineers did Facebook have to optimize this lock-in with Facebook? And I mean, for, for the ones who have been around the Ethereum space, there is something called lock-in with Ethereum that, you know, probably very few people have, have used and hasn't made it very far. Um, I think it was pushed by Alexander Zander, if I'm not mistaken, and it's, it's great, right? Um, but indeed, most of the listeners here have not ever used lock-in with Ethereum. Now, on the one hand, this is, uh, this is convenience, as you say, but what does that mean? Convenience means somebody has been studying and improving really hard the user experience, the UX of these products. And I am 100% convinced that decentralized technologies will lead to better UX. And I will give you an example. The first time I traded on a decentralized exchange was a few years back on something that uh, was back then called Ether Delta, which I think was the first actual decentralized exchange, um, you know, very early on. And I came to this page, Ether Delta, I don't know, dot com or something. Don't go there. It's it's uh, it went belly up and there was some bizarre scams in the end, but whatever. So I came to this website and it was very confused. And I was very confused because I was, I wasn't here the first time I need to do the onboarding step. Where's the lock-in button? I was like looking all over the screen. It just showed me a training interface. I was like, yeah, so this is obviously a demo. I obviously need to create an account. I obviously need to do this annoying KYC, but I couldn't find that button. And then like, it really struck me that, oh, in a decentralized exchange, there is no lock-in. There is no onboarding. And fundamentally, that means the UX of that, the UX of like truly decentralized applications is, you know, if we don't mess up UX as badly as we do today, in most cases, is superior to centralized um, applications. And if we compare that, for example, with onboarding to online banking, there's very few more frustrating experiences in the modern world than onboarding uh, to, you know, a new bank and especially online banking then. So yeah, decentralized technologies are guaranteed to have the better uh, UX ultimately. And, you know, one of the growths, one of the things of this uh, rapid crypto growth that I'm very happy about, like kind of my silver lining of, of uh, all the, the boom cycles, are that we have great UX people who start looking into crypto and who will build products which will be superior to their centralized alternatives. That takes time, that takes money, and that takes dedication that will, but we'll get there. Do you already know Common Ground? Common Ground is a new kind of social network that is owned by its users and that brings the benefits of Web3 to communities. Be part of it now. You find the link in the description. Now. Let's talk about your first experience using a decentralized exchange. Um, you were confused because you didn't find the sign up button and then realized, oh, I don't have to sign up because you bring your own identity into the system and it's an interoperable system. So you can just hit connect and you connected the exchange with your identity that you own. And then you can start swapping one cryptocurrency for another. Right. Yeah. But today, bringing your own identity is a really tough process. No, it uh, requires me to install, for example, MetaMask, which is a browser extension that is a crypto wallet where I have to keep 
12 words, a seed phrase, really, really secure. What do you see as the future of this, you know, identity management? Is it that every person will be required in the future to manage the security of their keys? Or do you think for this to get, you know, to mass market scale, we need a different solution for identity management? What's yeah. your point on that? That, that's a great question, and I'm honestly, I'm in two minds about it. So on the one hand, yes, it needs to get better, right? So installing this, installing this MetaMask or whatever wallet you do separately, that's that's a broken flow. And that's a little bit, I, I didn't actually witness this myself because I was too young back then, but apparently in an early version of Windows, you needed to install the TCP IP stack to use the internet. So, and this is kind of where crypto is today. You needed to install the protocol that is required to use the internet into your operating system to use the freaking internet. Imagine that, right? That is the stage in which crypto is today. So to come back to, to a question like you had earlier, that is the opening game. We had this phase where you needed to install TCP IP to your computer to use the internet today. That's the state of crypto today. Now, there are some uh, movements to improve that. Uh, one notable one is, for example, Brave. So Brave ships by default a, uh, a wallet. Uh, I think at least earlier it was a fork of MetaMask. Another one is Opera. So there's some uh, consumer-ready applications that ship good parts that are required to access Web3 technologies natively. And that's amazing. That's really, really great. We need stuff that is mass market ready. On the other hand, um, people are thinking, you know, these these uh, 12 or 24 words, does it really need that? Can we come up with a convenient solution? And I think here it's very, there's some very dangerous uh, middle ground territory that, that might just end up being a trap. So some providers are actually more custodians that want custody over your private keys. And I find it dangerous. I think the ultimate path to resilience is if you can teach it to the average intelligent high school graduate, right? So if we can teach in high school how, you know, you set up a wallet or what a mnemonic is, that is resilience. Everything that requires specialist knowledge that exceeds the capabilities of the average high school graduate is not resilient because you do require um, the reliance on you know some other parties that you do not understand. And I hope we can push a lot there. I hope we can simplify things so much that this is possible. And again, this is on, on long time scales, but I'm sure we will get there. Just like you know, uh, when I was in high school, we learned how to use a computer. I do think that people will learn how to secure their crypto asset. If it's 12 or 24 words or whatever, or some different way, I don't know. But I do think we will get there, and that's what resilience means. Well, that's such an interesting topic you're opening up, because in my mind, I'm not thinking, well, what are governments who control education uh, more aligned with? Are they more aligned with a future where big corporations are managing our identity, or are they more aligned with a future that you call the end game, where... Uh, users manage their identity themselves, even independent from governments. Yeah. What is actually, you know, where, where do they fall on this spectrum? What do you think? So, disclaimer, I'm an optimist. And some people call me delusional for that. And that is fine. Um, but I do think that ultimately, um, governments and regulators 
uh, do want the best for people on long time scales. There's outliers and there's no discussions on, on that. But I think largely like governments and regulators in democratic nation states want, want what is best for the people long term. So, and actually I, I do see that some many times regulation actually pushes for more decentralization. And while many times that's hurtful and it's painful in the short term, it's kind of cool to see. So I do think that ultimately um, that governments will understand that identity is not something that I should keep under my tight control, but that is something that, you know, needs self-sovereignty of users and to empower them and bring them into control. That's why I'm hopeful on that, on that note. If any of our curious listeners would like to actually experience what decentralization means, um, which systems, which, you know, apps or websites or whatever you want to call them are actually in a state where you would say, this is where you can experience decentralization today. Another way to frame yeah. it, what is decentralized today, if anything? Yeah, that's, that's a hard one because honestly, most pseudo decentralized, wannabe decentralized apps are far away from it. And that is really, that's, that's really sad. And that's one of the things that I'm personally pushing for, uh, improving. So I think what is kind of close is if you are using, so first of all, use your own Ethereum wallet, right? So I would say using the Ethereum blockchain, the Ethereum blockchain itself is reasonably decentralized. It's still far from perfectly decentralized, but it's, it's fair enough. Installing your own Ethereum wallet is a definite first step that you must take to experience that. And um, then I would uh, I would suggest interfacing decentralized um, you know DeFi. DeFi is definitely the most advanced um, when it when it comes to any of this infrastructure. Try to interface any of the DeFi applications that are hosted actually on ENS. So ENS, for the ones who are not familiar, is the Ethereum name system. You know how you have websites that end on .com or .org or whatever. There's something that ends on .eth. Now .eth is not something that most browsers understand. Um, again, Brave and um, and Opera are the first ones who, who are experimenting in that direction. And uh, what ENS allows you is to set up a website that is actually resolved on on Ethereum, so an Ethereum smart contract says, okay, if you want to go to, you know, this website.eth, then um, it, it looks something up. And um, this content, which is then the website, the actual website is delivered via a system called IPFS, the intraplanetary file system, which is actually decentralized delivery of, you know, delivery of content. And uh, one thing that I would I would suggest is it's a clone of Uniswap called Swapper. And uh, Swapper.eth, you can, if you have a browser that doesn't support that, you need to type Swapper.eth.limo. And this .limo is a resolver that translates this new ENS to something that your browser can also understand. That is something that, you know, I would uh, call out for, you know, a project that actually wants to go the long way of actually decentralizing it's still not perfect that still has some elements which are a bit centralized but that's i would say as good as it can get and yeah do check that out do play with these technologies the only way to learn is to use that stuff and it's 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 an interesting journey 
Let's talk about MetaMask for a moment, because this is what most people will probably choose as their wallet. Would you consider MetaMask a decentralized piece of technology? In particular, now thinking about what happens when I press the button send transaction? What's happening yeah. there in the background? And is this decentralized? Yeah. So first of all, no, it's not. Um, let's talk about what is a wallet actually. Like a wallet is actually just a piece of software around um, your private key or more specifically around your mnemonic that are these 12 to 24 words from which you can derive accounts, right? So that is the centerpiece of your wallet and everything around that is basically just helper functions and, and you know, decoration around using these things. What what does your wallet do when you start it, right? So you start, for example, MetaMask, it's it's something that um, people use typically for, for getting started. You, after you created your wallet, now you're logging in, right? So you're entering a password that unlocks access to this private key. The first thing it shows you is your balance, right? It shows you that you have a thousand E, well, hopefully. You might be wondering, how does it get that? Is it really true that I have a thousand ETH? Um, and actually here it, we start seeing that the wallet is actually a pretty dumb piece of software that relies on some other servers to provide it data. And these servers which provide data are, you know, as the word server suggests, not decentralized. That is a piece of software that is running on a computer that is controlled by some other company. In case of MetaMask, it typically happens to be in Fiora that shows you some number that your wallet trusts blindly, right? So no, that's not decentralized. And the trust assumption is that this data is correct and you just hope for the best in your wallet. And the second is while requesting data, um, this provider learns something about you. It knows, okay, this is Florian. Florian has account 0xABC123. That's his address. He sees his IP address and sees what he's going to do with his wallet. So again, on the two pillars that I mentioned before, towards resilient technologies, we're not there yet. It's neither decentralized nor is it private. Yeah, and that is important to realize when you use a crypto wallet today. There are um, developments undergoing to improve that. So one thing that that is a little bit happening behind the scenes with the merge, but actually an amazing change is that Ethereum allows you to validate the data correctness. It is really cool. Two implementations to call out is Kevlar and Helios. That is, uh, uh, Kevlar is is uh, done by an independent team of Ethereum researchers, and Helios is written by A16Z Crypto. That allows wallets to validate the correctness of data. And on the other side, on the privacy side, uh, I'm I'm going to share my own project now. Disclaimer: um, RPCH is a private RPC provider. Uh, that we're working on that utilizes the Hopper network that I briefly introduced in the beginning in order to request data privately. So these are the two pillars which are, which are, and we have improvements that are ongoing on both fronts right now. That is the perfect segue into uh, Hopper. You mentioned Hopper in this context allows people to transfer data privately when they're using their wallet. Maybe on a bit of a broader uh, stance, what is Hopper? What is the 
simplest definition of Hopper that you can give to our listeners? So I guess most people are familiar with the VPN, right? So it's the server that you connect to if you want to hide your internet traffic. And Hopper is doing that, but like 100x more private. That's, that's I guess, in a very, in a very simple terms, what, what Hopper does. So what we do actually in order to uh, prevent data leaks and to prevent third parties from harvesting transport level information. So again, transport means the packets that leave your home router and, you know, go to some website, some service or some other peer on, the, on a peer-to-peer -peer network. So what we do there is actually, is actually relatively simple. So instead of me sending the data directly to Florian, I'm sending it to Alice, who sends it to Bob, who sends it to Charlie, who sends it to Florian. So Florian just sees Charlie, that's his his uh, his handler, so to say, right? And he doesn't know where, where does the package come from. And that is also how Tor works. Um, and uh, yeah, Hopper makes things significantly more private than Tor by not just relaying this data packet, but doing packet mixing. So this, you know, second last intermediary who was managing my packet that is handed over then to Charlie who hands it over to Florian is receiving not just my packet, but a bunch of other indistinguishable looking packets that are kind of put in a bunch of envelopes. The envelopes are shuffled before they're sent out. And that means even strong adversaries who can see the whole network and see every packet going into every router on the planet cannot make sense of who is exchanging information with whom. Interesting. And when I want to use this with my MetaMask wallet, what would I have to do? Is this um, ready to use today? What, what what would I have to do to get more private with Hopper? Yeah. So Hopper is general purpose infrastructure. You can use it for any sort of data exchange. You can build a private chat app. You can build an IoT app that sends some sort of sensory data somewhere around. And, you know, we, we have a bunch of people who are interested in that from the MedTech space, which I find very cool. Um, but what we are building on top of Hopper is actually RPCH as a private RPC provider. So you can actually use that today. And there's two ways how you can use that. You can go on rpch.net, rpch.net. And on there, um, there's already first wallet who has that integrated, and that's called Block Wallet. So you can download this version of Block Wallet that supports RPCH, and you can use out-of-the-box Gnosis Chain. is only active on Gnosis Chain for now, just like that. You don't need to understand what's going on. You don't need to install anything else. Now, that's obviously a bit limited, right? So Block Wallet is kind of a niche wallet. So we have a second option, which is you download a Docker container, which is, if you have Docker installed, a one-line command that you copy-paste into your command line that is running a little connector, so to say, locally. Again, kind of similar to this TCP IP discussion back that we had, right? So you should download something to access the internet privately. And this thing gives access to your Ethereum wallet, any EVM chain, any EVM wallet that you connect to it. And... Um, yeah, and, and that's what gives you private access to an Ethereum network, EVM network, without third parties being able to spy on you. Link your various different accounts, link an account to an IP address and other off-chain identifiers and so on. And when I have this Docker container installed, I can put that into my MetaMask and then my MetaMask connects to this? Correct. 
Correct. You basically connect okay. your MetaMask or any other wallet that you use, right? Again, a shout out that there's a bunch of great other wallets out there. It's not just MetaMask. So uh, uh-huh. there's Block Wallet, which is a favorite of mine because it's privacy focused. Um, but I'm also a big fan of Frame. Uh, so Frame is if you are a bit of pro user and you want kind of proper control over what's going on, I recommend you to check out Frame. If you want a clean wallet that is similar to MetaMask, but, you know, kind of less quirky, I would recommend Rabi. Uh, so there's a bunch of really cool wallets out there that people are working on um, that are worth checking out if you're annoyed with MetaMask. You mentioned the Tor project uh, when you were explaining what Hopper does. Uh, many users uh, may have heard of Tor before. It's the so-called Darknet um, that became famous for... Uh, the Silk Road and those sorts of experiments. How is Hopper, you mentioned Hopper is more private than Tor because you do traffic mixing as well. What are other differences between Hopper and Tor? And did you maybe, is Hopper a fork of Tor? Did you start where yeah. they stopped? Or no, how um, how do you compare? Yeah, no, Hopper is a, Hopper, Hopper is a totally, totally separate development. Just as a clarification to me, like Tor is not dark web. Like some people use Tor, which is, you know, also technology uh, that is primarily used indeed for web browsing. So most people know Tor through the Tor browser. I use the Tor browser as well. It sends your traffic not directly to a web server, but again, in a similar fashion as what we do at Hopper through multiple hops, right? That's why it's a bit slower when you use the Tor browser. But it's a great way if you want to stay private online if you don't want your internet service provider to spy on you and other parties to spy on you that's a great that's a great first step and i would say the best we have today so hopper is working kind of similar in the sense that we have this multi-hop relay infrastructure and we also have this onion routing so onion routing that's actually happening at hopper is kind of interesting it basically means that when i send a data packet to florian we don't just end-to-end encrypted it which is one onion shell it is actually encrypted with four onion shells. In the first one, the whole payload gets delivered to Alice, peels off this outer onion layer and sends the, sends it on to Bob, who sends it on to Charlie, who sends it on to Florian. So only Florian, after removing all the onion shells of encryption, can see the actual payload that I was, was sending him. So that is indeed uh, something that Tor uses, that also Hopper uses. But uh, we have um, this packet mixing. And the second part that's maybe interesting is um, a significant difference or a significant problem, let's say, of Tor is it doesn't scale. Tor has been around for longer than Bitcoin. It's something that, that many people uh, don't know. So Tor has been around since forever when it comes to like Web3 terms. But disregarding that, Tor does not really scale. So if you look at the number of Tor nodes, it kind of stagnated. And sometimes Tor is slow, so it doesn't scale well. And you can ask yourself, why am I not running a Tor node? And the answer that you're probably giving yourself is, well, why would I? So that's fine. And that's what we at Hopper want to address by saying, you know, if there's one thing that Web3 proved is for giving incentives in a token to people, people are willing to run crazy software on their machines. For calculating stupid SHA-256 hashes, to secure Bitcoin, for example, right? Or to run proof of stake networks to secure Ethereum. 
So these are things which become possible when you incentivize anyone out there to run infrastructure at scale. And that's amazing. And it's what we leverage to enable privacy for everyone. Talking about incentives, um, why hasn't Tor adopted this? Um, are they generally not seeing the problem? Do they think incentives are a bad thing? Or do you think maybe they will, you know, introduce incentives when Opera proves that this actually leads to more scalability? Honestly, to like what is required to bring incentives to such a network, you could say, and actually this is kind of interesting, something similar has happened actually with Telegram. So Telegram was, uh, was actually um, being censored and wanted to be shut down by Russia, right? So what did Telegram do? They were paying people to run servers themselves. Yeah, so they were paying some individuals. What happened? Well, these these people lost access to their to their bank accounts. What happened? Well, they got paid in Bitcoin. So, and there was this cat and mouse game of of actually bringing bringing incentives in there. But the problem is, how do you do that in a way that is a privacy preserving? So, PayPal, Venmo, bank transfers, not an option, right? And how do you do that in a way that is also still scalable, right? Because sending someone Bitcoin, sure that works, but it doesn't work at scale, unfortunately. So, um, and if you think about then to have something that is bottom-up incentivized, so Hopper has a bottom-up incentive scheme. I don't talk about it because it would go too deep here, but we have a means of on the protocol level ensuring that you only get paid if you can prove that you have done a correct job of forwarding a packet. And that requires some on-chain magic that is not available for so long. In fact, it's only been around for uh, approximately three and a half years. Um, that's when Ethereum actually merged some, some on-chain capabilities in that allows us to build such things, which is, you know, not long. So when Tor started and through the longest parts of Tor's existence, the underlying technology was not there to build such things. So. Maybe Tor, maybe Tor will get there, you know, maybe Tor will remain kind of this, this, uh, infrastructure for certain use cases and there's infrastructure like Hopper for very private and other use cases. I don't think, for example, people will use Hopper for web browsing because the performance will not be sufficient, but for things like crypto wallets, like IOT networks and so on, I, I can totally see it happen. You also mentioned medical data. Um, what are the sort of big use cases that you see for Hopper? So for medical use cases, there's actually a company that we are working with. They're having a pretty interesting problem. So they're doing uh, fall detectors. So it's a detector. It looks like a fire detector that is, you know, in your, in your room and detects if somebody is falling, has a seizure, an epileptic attack, anything like that, and can call a nurse. And they're deploying these, um, these sensors in, in various settings. So right now you can also get it for your home, but they're also doing that in hospital settings. If you do such an, you know, innovative IOT uh, device in a, in a clinical setting, you are facing insane regulatory requirements. We think that FinTech is kind of harsh and we have all these regulations. Well, you know what? MedTech is worse. So, um, you have a huge amount of compliance that you have to do. And like the CEO of this company told me, Sebastian, I have a meeting like with, with some of these providers, I have half an hour meeting. I tell them one minute what we do. And for 29 minutes, I have to talk about data privacy and compliance. 
So what Hover does there is unlinking of this highly regulated um, environment on the one hand, and on the other hand, which I did mention is the sensors need to communicate with the cloud in order to do some data processing. And the cloud is the wild west when it comes to regulation largely, right? So you have to basically unlink these two environments and unlinking these two environments is something that uh, the Hopper MixNet can do really well because one side does not learn absolutely anything about the other side at all. That's something you can use Hopper for. If you think, you know, 10 years ahead, what will a world look like where Hopper is widely adopted? What will be different compared to Let's maybe start at the Web3 space. Um, in peer-to-peer, -peer, like we many times we think that, you know, decentralization solves all the issues. Thinking 10 years ahead, we will have achieved a decent amount of decentralization. And maybe uh, two projects just to shout out. We obviously, we did talk about Ethereum already, but there are certain amounts of data that are not directly delivered by Ethereum. And two projects that are working in that direction are the graph and pocket network, right? So the graph gives you smart contract data and makes it easily accessible for websites such as Uniswap, right? And pocket network provides this decentralized RPC layer so that your wallet can send transaction, can, you know, read what is the gas price, how many ETH do I have, and so on. Both projects are explicitly working towards decentralization. Both networks have a peer-to-peer -peer network that are decentralized. If and when they're actually decentralized, what happens here is that actually everyone out there is going to learn a whole lot about me. You know, we talk about front running, for example, when it comes to DeFi, right? This MEV, maximally extractable value, where people are making money off you trading, basically. And that's a billion dollar business already today. So once we decentralize in a naive fashion, what decentralization will enable is insane data harvesting opportunities. So with naive decentralization, we will be able to see, I will be able to tell what Florian is about to trade. I can say, ha, you wanted to buy this board ape? Now I got it first, right? Any of this data harvesting is guaranteed to happen. And in 10 years, Hopper will be used in peer-to-peer -peer networks that exchange any valuable information whatsoever to protect the most fundamental layer of data exchange because peer-to-peer -peer suggests that two peers are communicating, right? And that stuff will be secured uh, via Hopper. That's what we're working on. What is your biggest challenge today? What is the biggest hurdles you need to overcome to get to this place? What's, what's hard? Yeah, so there's there's some engineering challenges which just take a bit of time to make this thing more more uh, user friendly and developer friendly. I would say that's you know there's there's a bunch of individual small problems, but that's fair enough. There's one fundamental sucker, and that's the so-called anonymity trilemma. And it says you have a trade-off. Like all good things are trilemmas, right? And the same goes for anonymity. You have a trade-off between strong anonymity low latency and low bandwidth overhead. If you're willing to compromise on either of these three, you're fine. So, you know, you can get something that is low latency and low bandwidth overhead if you're willing to not have any privacy whatsoever. Fine, right? That's not an option. Uh, if you want something that's super slow, we can also make it happen. Uh, and if you have infinite data volume that goes through your mobile phone, then, you know, we can also give you decent privacy and make it fast. Finding 
finding a good trade-off for each application in this triangle is something that's hard and is something that will remain hard and will require ongoing work on our side to optimize use cases, to really let people use privacy for the purpose that they uh, are interested in. Well, I'm excited to see where you guys are uh, going to be in, uh, you know, not just 10 years, but uh, in the next two years. It seems like you're very much uh, working on this uh, intensely. So very, very interesting. Uh, I want to switch gears for a second and uh, get to a topic that is dear to my heart since uh, I'm a lawyer by background, actually. And both in Denver, but also now in this conversation, you mentioned the topic of regulation a few times. I think initially you said, well, in the end game, it shouldn't require regulation to, you know, um, protects users' uh, privacy or rights or anonymity. It should be sort of an emergent property of the system that they are interacting with, that they are protected uh, in terms of their privacy and um, sort of empowered individuals through the technology. Until we get to this end game, which, as you acknowledged, is sort of far away, um, do you think regulation will be needed? to get there? Is regulation sort of a bridge technology almost? Or do you think regulation at this very moment is already something that is actually stopping us from getting there? What's your perspective? on this? So first of all, in the end game, uh, I just wanted to bring up a phrase that I really like, which is not mine, but I think it was coined by Mona Elisa um, from, um, from Enzyme Finance. She uh, mm -hmm. brought this term, I think she called it technology regulated funds, right? Because they're, they're working on this fund technology. So, and basically for me, this term technology regulated, I find kind of cool, right? Because we don't want people to get screwed, right? We don't want individual traders to lose money, to get exploited and so on. And a lot of that can be uh, protected with technology and not just with regulation and enforcement. And that is really cool. And I think we should get there, but on the way there, I do think, um, you know, people can still get hurt and people did get hurt in these past weeks and months. And I'm, I'm really sorry for them. You know, uh, even though this cycle, I have uh, luckily not lost money to some centralized, um, players. I was among those who lost money on, uh, I think one of the biggest exchanges that ever went down on docs, um, so for people who read kind of like, you know, there was this thing called Mongox back in the days. Imagine today on the very same day, Coinbase and Binance on the same day go down, right? Coinbase and Binance combined are about as big as Mongox was back then. So it really felt like this is the end. Like we can pack up our shit. Bitcoin is toast. So that's why, you know, now there's bad shit happening. How do I feel about it? Well, it's not nearly as bad as it was back then. So, um, yeah, but still, uh, any of these, uh, any of, any of these things are still around today. And we have seen that there's crooks operating central software, and that is something that, that will still, until we really decentralize all the things be an issue. So for this kind of bridge time, which might be, you know, several years, unfortunately, we do need regulations that protect the individual from, you know, exploitations of just selfish, greedy, dishonest actors like SBF. 
So um, I think regulation does have a place there to protect the individual. And I think regulation has to step back for those who really choose to go for truly decentralized technology. So if you are truly decentralized and not just making decentralization theater, decentralization should not be subject of traditional um, regulations if it can protect uh, the user adequately anyway. So yeah, until then I do see it. And I hope that of course, you know, that doesn't mean that all regulation is is good. I mean, I'm very, very, very afraid of what's going to happen in the more near-term future after, you know, the meltdown of some really, again, greedy, um, negligent, and just maybe fraudulent uh, bank operators who will probably have no personal downside to what happened. It's It makes me furious. So to protect people on that front, uh, I am afraid that we will see overstepping by regulators that will come up with crazy regulations that will make on and offering providers even more careful. They will make life of stable coins even harder, even though that's the very innovation we need. I really hope that um, regulation does not overstep there. You know, especially in the U.S., obviously, where it seems that there's a free reign of where, you know, individual uh, agencies can do whatever they think is good and, you know, enforce certain mm. things and, and push precedent. So mm. I hope that doesn't happen. I hope we do have sensible regulation for the remaining centralized pieces of the infrastructure. And yes, those, I think, are, are reasonable to protect people. I remember that in Denver, we talked about this problem of information asymmetry between market participants. Um, I think it's it culminates at the moment in this discussion around MEV, which you explained is this, you know, sort of front-running um, situation where if I trade uh, on a decentralized exchange, um, it can happen that someone spots my transaction really early and then makes a sort of an arbitrage between my offer and um, the counterparty's offer and sort of gets in between to make uh, some some gain. What do you think, you know, until the point where Hopper possibly makes that, you know, impossible, um, do you think that um, intermediaries, let's say, you know, like a Uniswap type exchange that runs a centralized front end or someone like metamask that runs a wallet or any other kind of mainstream mainstream in quotes um crypto application today should they be subject to regulation that protects users from that kind of behavior or is that going to be uh you know too much of a burden and will actually hold back the space to evolve into you know into further and further decentralization no actually and this is this to me is a very interesting point right we talk again you asked me at the beginning what is actually decentralized like if you go to app.uniswap.com uh, i think it is right that is not decentralized everything that ends on a .com .org domain is by definition centralized so if somebody tells you about a dap right decentralized application that ends on something.com no not decentralized. And I think any of these trading venues, for example, that are centralized, they have access to information that nobody else has. So 
And this is a little bit technical, but on the other hand, it is very, very closely coupled to financial markets. So think about what happens if I'm making a trade on Uniswap. Um, so there's two parties which have privileged information that nobody else has, exclusive, right? The first one is Uniswap itself. So uh, you, and I, with Uniswap, by the way, I don't mean Uniswap the protocol. I don't mean Uniswap the DAO, which is all great. And I absolutely love for being permissionless technology, but I mean, Uniswap as a company, I don't know if it's Uniswap Labs or this universal, universal, yeah, there's some other company in the picture as well. Anyway, the operator of the website knows when Florian goes on the website, the operator of the website does a bunch of really shady things in my eyes as well. So first of all, they're tracking Florian the second he comes on the website with Google Analytics. That's something that in my eyes is from a values perspective, a complete no-go. Like user tracking in Web3, there's absolutely no space for user tracking in the Web3. And the second thing which I find even more shady, the second that Florian submits a transaction, they're again tracking him on Google Analytics and they're you know, tracking him through some what they call compliance tool, which I think is from a compliance side bullshit because they learn absolutely nothing about you that matters in terms of compliance, but they track you. And this information is available to them ahead of your trade being visible to absolutely anybody else on the planet and can be used against you. You have absolutely no guarantee that there is, you know, this information is not used against you. And that's why to answer your question, yes, at this point, if somebody is in a you know, privileged position where we have to blindly trust them to not abuse data against the user. Yes, I think that should be subject to regulation. The second party that has privileged information is in fact not Metamask because Metamask is just a wallet, right? It's a, as I say, sometimes a little bit uh, too harshly, but I say it's a pretty dumb piece of software that relies on external services. And these external services, again, have privileged information about what Florian is about to trade. And that is, for example, um, Infura, the operator of the servers, which give you the information of how many ETH you have, but also that take your transaction. They also see these uh, trading information in all details that everybody else is going to see first and exclusively. So yes, I also think that these centralized providers, which are on an uneven playing field, should be subject to regulation because otherwise, they all promise that everything is fine. And I even believe them, right? I met a few people who work at consensus. I think they're all honest. I think they're all great, but it's not the trust assumption that we should build the web three on. And therefore we should have regulations that are enforceable, that make sure that users are protected. And you know, that does two things, right? On the one hand, yeah, it does make it a bit harder. There will be fewer providers who do that, but you know, we can be somewhat certain that if they fuck up, they can be prosecuted for doing so. On the other hand, it creates a push for true decentralization. If you actually decentralize these things properly, and if you respect privacy properly, then you should not be subject to such regulations. And that's what I, you know, it's pushing towards the end game. I see where you're going. This is uh, actually quite a compelling proposition. You say, don't regulate the, those who offer truly decentralized services and truly decentralized means no information advantage at any point in the system, yeah. which will need privacy technology like Hopper is developing it. 
But if you're going the centralized route and you have an information advantage as a interface provider of some kind, you should be subject to regulation that in case you do abuse your position, there are real consequences that you have to suffer as yes. an organization. Exactly. Interesting proposition. Um, what is, have you received any feedback on this from people? You know, you're very well connected, you know, yeah, I, I will have in to, the space. Uh, honestly, I, I didn't have the time to, to talk about it much, but uh, we, sh we should take this to, to a Twitter and maybe LinkedIn because I think some, some legal folks still stick to LinkedIn a bit more than to Twitter. Um, but yeah, to me, it is something that is that is makes sense and that is needed to push us in a direction that ultimately uh, benefits humans. I don't know what the U.S. situation on this is, but it could be that in Europe we're pretty close to the situation with the markets and crypto assets regulation, which at least, you know, uh, in its uh, recitals, so not the paragraphs of the regulation, but the recitals that come before mentions that if you're building a project or providing services in a fully decentralized manner, these regulations should not be applying to you. While if you are a centralized service provider in the crypto asset space, then there is a whole host of rules, even around um, market manipulation, things like front running and so on that do apply to you. So I think it's worth looking at um, the Mika regulation from these sorts of uh, perspectives that you're offering it's really quite interesting and something we should be picking yeah. up on yeah absolutely i mean may maybe just one last point on that one i think we're not going to solve front running entirely there will be front uh -huh. running so basically what you're doing is when you send a transaction to ethereum where you're trading on uniswap is i have the intent to trade here i'm willing to pay you money in forms of ethereum transaction fees please include my transaction now uh -huh. While you broadcast that, you do give up this information and this information will be front run one way or another. And there is no technical solution to perfectly solve that. So mm -hmm. we should still, we should try, right? We should try to solve it as well as is technical possible. And when we can solve it, I think we have to provide a level playing field. And a level playing field means that anybody can front run me. And that includes, and this is this is where I really love this innovation in the crypto space, I find it amazing, is that includes players, which are actually kind of nice, which say, hey, if Florian gets screwed, how about I offer a service that I give a kickback to Florian? And this is exactly uh, another shout out to a project I, I find pretty interesting, what CalSwap does, right? So you can trade on CalSwap, and on CalSwap you say, okay, I intend to buy myself some Hopper tokens, whatever. So... I might get front run, but now there is a CalSwap solver who says, hey, I give you a kickback on that one. And there's a competition. And by being a comp by by having a game that allows for competition, you have the best possible outcome for the player. And that's great. And these sort of things should be pushed if we can't possibly solve it uh, perfectly. That's actually uh, indeed uh, an interesting turn of events. So um, even if there would be regulation in place that uh, prevents um, someone like an interface provider to uh, front run you, it really doesn't mean that you're not being front run. It just means that everybody in the world who's interested has an equal chance at front running. And then there is a sort of competition which could potentially lead, such as in the case of CowSwap, 
to a situation where you're being front run by someone that is willing to share what they make from this back yeah. with you through a kickback. Yeah, exactly. That's beautiful. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think we will Happy. see more more of these technologies appearing. Uh, so there's some, there's not a lot of information disclosed yet, but uh, Flashbot's team is working in that direction as well. So they know something called Suave, and Suave goes in a similar direction as CowSwap of basically building general purpose infrastructure, which is open, right? And this open infrastructure can be used to provide kickbacks to users to uh, improve this situation generally. Interesting. Um, all right. Um, I have a last sort of, you know, range of topics I would like to touch upon, which is the topic of DAOs or decentralized autonomous organizations. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, I think Hopper itself is such a decentralized autonomous organization. Is that correct? There is a Hopper DAO. Yes. It's mm -hmm. important to delineate this uh, right now. So there is a bunch of Hopper things out there, right? So for example, there's Hopper Association. And Hopper Association is the issuer of the Hopper token. Hopper Association is what collected some funds from VCs in order to kickstart development of the protocol, the community, and also the Hopper DAO. And the Hopper DAO is uh, what has initiated the distribution of that token to the public, which has uh, done a balancer, so it's also an AMM similar to Uniswap, distribution of Hopper tokens through which it made, um, yeah, through which it made, uh, collected some funds. And these funds which have been collected are um, at this stage 100% sitting in a Uniswap pool which the Hopper DAO is taking some decisions on. Also, the Hopper DAO is part of very active um, kind of governance experimentation. So we have done a series of, we call it explicitly governance experiments with real money at stake to experiment with operational modes for such DAOs. So we experimented with um, one person or one account, one vote, where every account that was in the very beginning, every account had exactly one vote, right? So everyone was equal. We experimented with one token, one vote. So if Florian has a thousand Hopper tokens and I only have 10, then Florian has a hundred times more influence than I have. And we've also implemented uh, and experimented with quadratic voting. So. If uh, Florian has, um, you know, 10,000 Hopper tokens and I have 100 Hopper tokens, then Florian only has 10 times more voting power than, than I do. We also experimented on the direction of, of how actually proposals are being made, discussed in a forum, uh, in kind of a temperature check vote before being executed on-chain. So yeah, that is all uh, things that have been going on pretty actively over the past years in the in the Hopper DAO. It's pretty amazing. Can you maybe tell us about which uh, of these modes of voting, so quadratic, one person, one vote, one token, one vote, which ones yielded the best results? Or can you even, is it impossible yeah, to say? So what was definitely working best is quadratic voting. Quadratic voting tries to strike a middle ground for the ones who are not familiar with it between what we have in typical like nation state democracies where every citizen has one vote. On the one hand and on the other hand, you have like shareholder corporations where, you know, every additional dollar can buy myself a vote 
you know, and with this vote, I have like proportional more, um, more power and quadratic voting strikes to hit this middle ground right between one person, one vote and one dollar, one vote. And that is definitely interesting because you might say, well, if I'm a hopper whale, you know, maybe that hopper whale has a right interest in being represented more significantly more than somebody who's one token, right? On the other hand, it is also totally fair to say that, you know, if a thousand people who all have some hopper tokens have a certain say, why would one whale swing this whole result? And that's why we, yeah. we've seen both of these, both of these incidents actually in our, in our governance experiments. So that's why QV is great. Now QV yeah. has one annoying problem. Florian can in theory create a thousand accounts. And from his thousand accounts, he splits his token balance to a thousand accounts and he will now dominate the vote. And this is what is called sibling. So quadratic voting is not natively civil resistance resistant and it needs a civil prevention mechanism in place. And that is a tricky part to actually set up, especially if we want to be privacy preserving. So if we'd require, you know, full KYC and Florian has to personally come by Sebastian's home and introduce himself, then yeah, that's possible, but that's, that's hard. So, yeah. um, yeah, that's, that's why we're still thinking on how to, how to properly solve that going forward. Very interesting. We have actually looked at the civil resistance problem ourselves at common ground. And for now we've solved it, um, through a, um, integration with fractal, which provide a, a proof of uniqueness and proof of personhood, um, sort of as a service. So on common ground right now, every user can say, okay, I want to prove that I'm real and unique, not a sock puppet, not a civil, and they can do this proof of personhood. With fractal and then through this DID uh, standard, um, make that uh, sort of part of their identity on common ground. But then, sort of the the drawback of that is is that it's um, you know again sort of a centralized point, um, and it's um, in our case using an AI that you have a video call with, so it uses yep. biometric data to uniquely identify you. And just today I've read, um, a thread on Worldcoin on Twitter, oh, yeah. which yeah, takes yeah. this to the extreme, right? They exactly. scan your iris with dedicated hardware and you know, it's funny enough. Worldcoin is, uh, sort of owned or to some extent, uh, owned by the same guy, Sam Altman, who also Sam did, Altman, uh, yeah. the, the GPT three and GPT four. So people are now suspecting that he wants to make everybody unemployed to then give them UBI through <laughs> Yeah. Their Worldcoin ID. I guess there are means to solve for civil resistance, but at the moment they require points of centralization that maybe not everybody does agree with. Um, yeah. And also, you know, processing biometric data, which again uh, is maybe something that we may need Hopper for in the future uh, to do yeah. it securely. Right. So it's all connected in a really interesting way. It's fascinating. Yeah. It's tough. Like, really. Um, Solving that one properly is, is really tough. And that's why we're still actively thinking about how to do this going forward in a resilient fashion. You've mentioned that, uh, the Hopper, uh, association is sort of a centerpiece in your, in your whole structure as a project. Um, can you tell us why you've picked an association? It seems somewhat like an unusual choice, right? Ethereum yeah. became a foundation. 
Um, others are using, you know, an AG or a limited liability corporation. Yeah. An association seems um, quite exotic. Um, why did you choose it? And are you happy with your choice so far? Yeah. So basically, I mean, first of all, I think what is important to as a starting point is we wanted to have some legal entity. There's a bunch of people out there who say, you know, YOLO, DAOs are DAOs. We don't need a legal body at all. And I find it dangerous, uh, especially when it comes to liability. Um, that, you know, I, I also thought, hey, you know, screw all these lawyers. Who wants to work with lawyers anyway? Can we just like do it by ourselves? But then like I learned at some point that there's a word called liability and that is not a good thing. And liability is something for also maybe the technical listeners here. You write smart contracts. Do you want personal unlimited liability if something fucks up? Because the one thing that we learned, smart contracts earlier or later, you know, more often than not, they do get screwed. Do you want to be personally liable for the losses that your smart contract makes? Probably not, right? So that's where legal innovation from, you know, 500 years kicks in and says, hey, we have this corporation or some legal structure which shields you, right? It's something that people made up. Right. So it's, it's this shield, this virtual shield that protects you personally, which is great. It's great innovation. Um, and that's why, yes, we do want a legal entity for exactly these purposes. Now, the question is which, um, and what many crypto companies do is, or crypto projects do is they set up a foundation. And honestly, I think this foundation model was for whatever reason done for Ethereum and then everyone blindly followed. So, uh, I don't think it was necessarily from the get go, the best decision, but it was just something that pretty much everybody just followed through with just from an operational side, foundations have huge overhead. So foundations have, that's at least what I learned. I've never been involved as a disclaimer. I've never been involved in a foundation. I never set up a foundation and so on. But from what I hear, foundation have uh, huge reporting duties because they're typically meant for you know, inheritance funds or, or, uh, things that should last for ideally centuries. Right. And it is not quite the same as let's face it, technical projects that are more like startups and they do pivot around and make changes and so on. So it's just not a great structure. On the other hand, we looked at, of course, the normal, uh, for-profit corporations. But we wanted to keep the door open to have governance of Hopper, Hopper Association also through means of the Hopper tokens. Um, so yeah, that is something which is hard in a share corporation because share corporations such as in Switzerland or Germany, AGs, like something like stock, like limited liability stock corporations typically have relatively tight regulations on what you can do. And what you have to do also. So you cannot do crazy governance experiments. And since I said in the, in the beginning, we deliberately kept Hopper DAO kind of flexible. We wanted to do experimentation there with real funds at risk, because we think there is too little that is being done in that direction and people kind of all follow the same scheme. Yeah. And that's why we chose a, in a, uh, association and maybe actually, uh, just a few more sentences on association because sometimes I get people who are confused. So I uh, guess in the German speaking part of Europe, associations are kind of omnipresent for local soccer clubs, your chess club or whatever. In other even parts political of, parties. 
political parties. Yeah, in other parts of the world, that that is, I, I sometimes get people asking me, "Hey, Sebastian, what is that?" Right. So it's a club, <laughs> right? It's it's. <laughs> I think in Switzerland has per capita the highest number of associations. I don't know the exact number, but it's an insane number of associations that you have there. Well, I think pretty much in average, every citizen is in more than one club in Switzerland in more than one association. So yeah, that's why we chose it for having on the one side, little overhead as compared to foundations. On the other hand, having more flexibility than um, kind of limited liability stock corporations. Makes a lot of sense. And um, little disclaimer, um, Common Ground also went for the association model and you've been a major help, Sebastian, in, uh, in, in for us getting there. So uh, thank you for spreading the knowledge well, here, I it think needs, um, it needs people who trailblaze, yeah. and you know, I think we're still again in the opening phase of this of this long game of Web three technologies. And to me, it's fascinating to see that I thought, you know, I've worked in crypto now since six, seven years full time, and I thought, okay, now I understand things. Now I work with a lot of people who work in this for years. Things are kind of clear. No, nothing is clear. You know, we are in the very early onset of this game. We're literally kind of comparing this to corporations, to stock corporations, which have been around for literally hundreds of years. So we have several hundred years of experience to gather here um, to get to that level. And yeah, we're speed running it, but there's still a lot to learn and to, to understand. And you do not even have proper blueprints yet. And uh, I mean, you've picked Switzerland as a jurisdiction. You are yourself, um, you know, uh, you've studied in Switzerland. Are you happy with your choice of jurisdiction? Also now looking at what the United States is doing, shutting down crypto banks and other sorts of things. Do you think Switzerland was a good choice or um, would you have picked something else sort of looking back? Yeah, I, I think it's good. I, I also think it's good for having a, we, we talked about regulators before. Um, I had some touch points with various regulators in Switzerland and I can say these people there do have the long-term best interest of the people at heart. And it's not something I can say about other regulators, um, you know, especially looking, looking at, uh, the U S in Switzerland, you know, having kind of a strong stance on privacy on also actually decentralization in Switzerland, um, being a, a best democratic country is having a lot of, uh, touch points, which are really very deeply rooted, which are aligned with what we want to do in crypto. So yeah. even if not everything is perfect, you know, for example, getting access to what we would consider a first world adequate bank account in Switzerland is still hard having, right. you know, black and white clarity on taxes is not a given in Switzerland either. Um, so there are definitely still points that, that need significant improvement also there, but I think long-term from values, from the direction of regulations, I think Switzerland is a great place to kick things off in a crypto, uh, in a crypto sense. Yeah. Where's Common Ground actually based? Where, where are you guys actually based? Uh, so the Common Ground Association is based in Zug. Ah, in Switzerland also. Okay. Um, we went for Switzerland with the association because what we learned is that um, it's possible yeah, to right. have basically one token, one vote governance in the association, which is exactly, I think, what you also hinted at, something that is extremely beneficial when you are a DAO. 
but you also want the benefit of limited liability. And so a Swiss association seemingly gives you both. Whereas in Germany, which would have been an alternative country to do it with because some team members are based in Germany, um, it's not possible. You always have one member, one vote. So it really seems to be that Switzerland is uniquely positioned here to uh, yeah. be the home for, for DAOs with limited liability. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. Yeah. Talking about DAOs, um, we were both recently involved in an interesting Twitter debate. So I thought I'd pick up on this in this conversation, which is this question of constitutions. I think you've posted it on Twitter. Um, does anybody know good examples of constitutions for yeah. DAOs? Um, why in God's name do you think a DAO should have a constitution? Aren't constitution meant for nation states? What is the connection here? What's what's in your mind when you ask yeah. such questions? So I have signed a bunch of DAO constitutions. So I am a grateful recipient of various airdrops. And some of them made me sign a constitution. For example, ENS DAO, right? So I talked about ENS before. It's this Ethereum name system thing, which I think is a great piece of technology. They have a DAO. They did something interesting. When you claim your airdrop, you need to sign off on individual articles of the constitution. I don't remember the, the details anymore. There was something similar by the optimism. So optimism is one of the uh, biggest contenders in the L2 space of scalability of Ethereum. They also had something similar. So that made me think, okay, there seems to be something here. Um, and basically I think DAOs should have that eventually. Because, like, what is a DAO? Like, it needs to be somewhere anchored. What do we actually do, right? And needs to be somewhere anchored, like, the procedural regulations of what we actually ought to do here. And to me, that all needs to start somewhere, right? We need some context of, um, of, of what it is. Because, I mean... If, if we don't have that, like, what is the context? Like, what is even a valid proposal and what is not? It has to be defined. So in my mind, a, uh, a DAO constitution is a minimal framework that constitutes the operational guidelines of how a DAO functions and what it intends to do. Of course, it can be amendable, right? So it doesn't mean that this is carved in stone necessarily forever. Um, Looking at some of these, including ENS uh, and some other, and like Gitcoin and some others, it felt like people wrote some stuff in there that sounded good, but I had a feeling that can't be all. And like then, then after I made this Twitter thread, I, I got really a lot of feedback. I didn't expect anything to be honest, but it was really a lots of of helpful input that we are uh, currently checking out internally, and the diversity there was huge, from like hardcore legalese that was on many pages basically saying nothing to like amazing value pieces on how to make the world a better place that didn't seem to have any relationship to the DAO to like sales pitches to, you know, Shit. operational descriptions that are purely instructional how stuff works. And I think this some clarity should be there that you have a framework of what is this animal, right? Because again, we don't have 500 years of uh, legal precedent blueprints and best practices that we do have for stock corporations. And um, 
Yeah, so some something like that I think is needed to define it. If you call it constitution, if you call it something else, I don't care, but have some clarity on, on how the DAO operates, I think is is greatly needed and something that we're currently looking at at Hopper uh, internally. Do you think for such a constitution to make sense, uh, it needs a sort of new kind of institutional framework that can turn, you know, a rule into an actual practice so you know in in uh in nation states we have this idea of a constitutional court mm -hmm. that when the lawmaker violates so you know the lawmaker passes a law that introduces the death penalty let's say right yeah um they, they can do this um and um but then you know citizens or other organizations they could you know, bring this to the constitutional court and say, well, according to the constitution of this country, the death penalty is illegal. So this law must be illegal. It must be voided. Um, do you think the DAO world needs this institutional layer for these um, constitutions to make sense? Or should these constitutions be purely sort of declarative, sort of just explaining, well, that's our intention. Uh, our best effort is to follow these rules. But, you know, if we don't, then... Well, there's nothing you can do. How do you look at this? To me, my my view is that DAOs should be self-contained. So they should, as little as possible, somehow uh, introduce externalities and dependencies on, on externalities. Of course, that's not perfectly possible because one externality that pretty much all of them have is, for example, the Ethereum blockchain, right? So, yeah, there's that. That you have to anchor somehow. But... Ideally, I would like to see a system, and again, I don't know if that's possible, that is self-contained in that you say, okay, you want to propose something, and I look a lot at existing DAOs, such as, for example, MakerDAO, right? That you yeah. amend some of the rules that you have. For example, let's say I want to amend in MakerDAO uh, the way how people are, are paid, right? So there's these protocol politicians in MakerDAO that actually made a, a decent salary for you know, just engaging in governance, which I find amazing, by the way, that we have people yeah. who work in DAOs that are properly decentralized and making a salary. Amendments to that should be possible. And there should be people who then say in the early phases of such proposals, wait a second, this one is kind of violating actually another, um, another paragraph of the constitution or some other framework, however you call it. And therefore it is, it is invalid. So it should happen whenever a proposal comes up. Part of the discussion should be, well, is this in line with our constitution? And this is how, you know, it should decide the vote on it, basically. That's how it Yeah, should. Yeah, I think that's my that current worldview. But again, like missing a yeah. lot of experience here. So I don't have a strong yeah. opinion on that one uh, because yeah. we have so little experience with that. We're literally like among, you know, the first people here we're playing with this and now thinking about something where you say, you know, 500 years later, well, obviously you need a shareholders agreement. Yeah. And we're sitting here right now yeah. thinking, what sort of things yeah. do we actually need? Mm. Well, I really love the Kleros project, um, which has been around since ages yes. as well, I think 2017. And they are working on this long-term uh, project of building institutions like courts on chain that can arbitrate such matters. But I think it's really, really early days still um, also for them. And I would agree with you that uh, we need sort of pragmatic solutions uh, foremost. Um, but as a lawyer, you know, I sort of have this 
this dream of, well, will we ever have, you know, an on-chain constitutional court for these kinds of things? Will we build the network state based on what we call DAOs today? And then, you know, all these questions are sort of really, really interesting to, to look at. 100% agree. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, Sebastian, we're at the end of this podcast. I uh, ran out of questions. Of course, uh, there's much, much more to talk about, but uh, I've kept you for a long time now. Uh, I'm very, very grateful for your time and the expertise you've been sharing. I'm sure many people have learned um, from your explanations and sort of just, you know, leading by example in this space. Please continue doing that. You're an absolute force for good. We need more, uh, more like you. So um, thank you very much for finding Common Ground with me today. Thank you, Florian, and thank you for providing this platform. And I would also say thank you for, as a lawyer, taking this crazy space serious and pushing it forward for your work that you do at Common Ground and, you know, and otherwise representing crypto versus institutions and regulators. Yeah, please keep that up also. Thank you.